Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Business as Usual podcast. This is our December 2020 uh, episode. Just so you're aware, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at businessaupod without uh, any delay, Mike. Let's let's what are we getting started with this week. Let's get cracking. So, uh, in this week's uh, this month's podcast, we're going to be looking at uh, a couple of the biggest headlines from last month in the uh, in the business world. Uh, you are, aren't you, Jack? Going to be taking us through uh, cost leadership versus differentiation leadership in five minutes. Yeah. Looking at the um, supermarket industry, uh, then we're going to look at another common misconception. So, why students often get it wrong about autocratic leadership slash uh, a power culture, which you might be looking at in uh, in A level at the moment. Um, and then we're going to look at a few bits of data, market research data, um, give you something to interpret um, as practice, like you're doing the exam, and a couple of questions for GCSE and A level for you to get your teeth into. Okay, great. So let's get started with the the big news of today. Actually, we're recording this on Friday. Um, this is what we do with our Friday nights. And the big news from today is it looks like Arcadia are on the brink of, brink of collapse. And this, by the time you listen to this early December, you might have found that this has actually already happened. Um, but it seems like it's inevitable. And to be honest, it seems like it's been inevitable for quite a while, doesn't it? So if you're not sure who Arcadia are, Arcadia is owned by, well, technically it's owned by uh, Philip Green's wife, Tina Green. Um, but Sir Philip Green's been the guy that in, in charge of this empire that he's built over the last several um, decades including brands that you will have heard of like Topshop, Topman, Miss Selfridge, Dorothy Perkins, Wallace, Evans, Outfit and Burton. And they employ over 15,000 people in the UK. So Mike, I mean, before we get started, I think it's probably worth just a, a, a bit of a summary of what the administration process looks like for a business. So, I mean, they've been looking to possibly go into um, voluntary liquidation is what they're looking to go into. So they are looking to try and raise raise capital to meet some of their mounting debts uh, that their creditors um, are starting to call in. So what usually happens in the business is you will, you will become um, insolvent, which is, is what happens before, before bankruptcy. So you will have more outgoings than, than incomings, so more outflows and inflows. You'll be struggling to service uh, those monthly expenditures such as rent on the stores. Uh, eventually, suppliers will start to lose patience uh, and eventually they will get together with other suppliers and look to do um, a court action to try and get your company uh, wound up, as they say. it. So to, to get the court to get you in line, get the administrators in and try and recover as much of the um, amount owed as possible. So that could be by... Um, vast cost cutting and the business carries on operating and it comes out of administration as a fair few football teams have done for example or it could be they actually force you to sell off most of the business or you get taken over by maybe mike ashley um who could who could come in and and asset strip your company um so yeah um it's it's a brutal it's a brutal process um that doesn't um isn't undertaken lightly um it's a lengthy process it's been a long time coming um, and I don't think COVID can be <laughs> blamed completely for this one. No, that definitely hasn't helped. Obviously, a lot of their a lot of their stores are in a high street premises, and so as a result, the fact that we've had these lockdowns and people have been much more conservative with their shopping has had a, has had an impact, and it will have had an impact. But you're right. You know, this has been coming for years. Arcadia has a, a plateaued a decade ago, really, didn't they? Mm. They and and they've you know you you couldn't you couldn't 
with most businesses, you can you kind of assume that the primary objective of the business is growth. And I don't think if you looked at Arcadia's, you know, spending and if you looked at Arcadia's profit levels over the last 10 years, especially the last 10 years, you probably can't make that statement for Arcadia. It very much seems like their their main objective was just to continue where they were, you know, make 150 million pounds worth of profit a, a year, fund Philip Green's and Tina Green's yacht lifestyle in Monaco. <laughs> and they've they you know they haven't accelerated in ways that other businesses have and they found themselves overtaken you know they were overtaken by zara and inditex when when zara and inditex took risks and went out to china while topshop at arcadia basically refused to invest in anything that wouldn't pay back within a year or two they've seen huge amounts of their customer base move to online shopping and e-commerce such as you know um asos boohoo.com you know this has been this has been coming for quite a long time and I, you're right i don't think we can really blame covid for this one but the the consequences fall on the suppliers the consequences fall on the members of staff who are very likely to to lose their jobs in the coming months yeah i mean i think the first real sign was back in 2018 when they first turned a a huge loss i think it was a around 100 million uh, pre-tax loss um and they'd be making around like you say 150 million odd in in previous years so that was the first kind of signs that it was it was a not such a steady decline, um, and for the reasons like you say, and very much like Marks and Spencers, it almost feels like a um, an objective of survival for for years, which which is never uh, never a good thing. And obviously, all these people that are well, we should say employees uh, that are going to lose their jobs are going to find it very hard to find another job as everyone is is feeling the pain. Yeah, we've uh, we've talked on this podcast so many times about the potential death of the high street, and this is just another example. You know, we I mentioned this in the staff room today, and one of the one of my um, colleagues just looked at me like <laughs> she clearly spends quite a lot of. She thought that Arcadia would be able to survive based on the amount of her wages that she spends in there, <laughs> but um, unfortunately, that looks like it's not going to be the case. Now, one thing that they're talking about is, and the, obviously the details are still to to really come out that the the um, administrator hasn't quite been appointed yet, but it looks like they're going to try and have this sort of light touch administration where they they kind of, the management group retain running of the company, but the administrators are appointed to effectively look at what assets within the business can be sold. And it sounds like they're going to try and sell off as much of it as as possible so that they can, they can meet those debts that they have. And one of the, you know, you look at the portfolio of brands that, that Arcadia have, the two most sellable by quite a distance are Topshop and and uh, Miss Selfridge, and it sounds like there's a chance that Boohoo.com are sniffing around there and looking to maybe potentially, if the price is right, buy into that. But um, it'll be really interesting to see if when that happens, or if that happens, they continue with the high street presence, or whether they Boohoo's obviously an online-based company, whether they try and just you know take up relationships and assets that Topshop and Miss Selfridge have, and try and sort of shift them online, shift their online presence to you know 100% online presence yeah i mean if anyone can take you know some of those ailing brands and and, and modernize them i suppose boohoo are the ones to do it so if they can see i mean i can't personally see the value in in buying any of those brands um but if if boohoo think they can then then all the power to them we will see the second news story mike 
Yeah, so, I mean, we can't avoid this one, can we? We are looking at um, optimistically hoping we have a vaccine or maybe even free vaccines to choose from um, going into the new year. For so I believe the Russians, by the way. It, <laughs> uh, what, the vodka? I don't think we count that as a, <laughs> don't count that as a vaccine. Um, but yes, are the, are the Russians got a vaccine as well, have they? They're, 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 they're saying they have. Um, they're saying it's been really effective. Yeah, I heard they've been testing it um, <laughs> quite quite randomly on on prison inmates, etc. Um, there's been, not there's, sure about that one. The, the testing thing's been an interesting one because there's been a bit of a. I think I don't know if it's the AstraZeneca one. One of the testing, one of the one of them, it was it emerged earlier this week that most of their testing has been done on people under the age of fifty five, who yes. obviously are not as affected by the coronavirus as people over the age of sixty. And so there's obviously a long way to go, but nonetheless, it seems like it's a bit of a positive step and the markets have reacted to that. Definitely. I mean, I was listening to a, a what I call an epidemiologist, is it? Um, that was on the radio the other day. Um, and they were saying that if they were going to take any of the vaccines, this would be the one because it is it had a, a base um code if you will that they have just altered and it's been heavily tested so it's just been a modified vaccine rather than the other vaccines uh from the firms abroad that have been been from scratch so um yeah it sounds like this is the one we've we've invested a lot in isn't it as in the uk i think we've 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 pre we've pre-bought many um millions of vaccines yeah did you so, see the rumor that um there was a rumor that the government wanted the union jack to be printed on the vaccine that sounds very Boris Johnson, that one. Did you see that rumour online? I did I not, that. no. I saw that online the other day. I don't know if it was a joke. I saw it on Twitter, so you never can really trust Twitter. But I just thought that was funny. The idea Made that, in like, the UK rather than made in the prove, USA. Yeah. Just to prove that we're great at something. Um, I would totally do that myself. Then um, they'll put the Union Jack on the front. This, uh, this, this suggestion is that hopefully, and this is hopefully, that we might be able to get to a point where by Easter we should be somewhat of a way back to normal. And it's funny to think, actually, because do you remember in January we were doing we were doing a bit more of a regular news podcast, and we started talking about the coronavirus in January, <laughs> and that was that was a good two months before it really hit into the UK, and, and we obviously went into lockdown in March. And there was a few there was a few weeks where we were talking about what impact will this virus have on businesses in the UK, but it wasn't because the entire economy would be closed and we'd be under lockdown. It was because we whether they'd be able to get you know, products from China where the where the virus originated and, and, and other Asian um, areas, whether we'd be able to get supplies and products into the UK. And it's just, it's crazy really when you think back that we we, prob- we first talked about the coronavirus on this podcast nearly a year ago. Um, and even then, you know, had no idea it was going to turn out to be the way the way it has. Now, the, the stock market and economic projections being made by, you know, official national statistics and, and what have you, seem to suggest you know that it's been a bit of a lift in the stock market um and in these economic projections on on the premise that if these vaccinations are effective moving forward we might be able to get to some sort of normality in the next six months hopefully so it's just been interesting to see the the impact of that even just one little bit of good news you can see that news article from uh, the headline on the screen from the 9th of november global stock markets rocket on vaccine hopes. And so it's just interesting to know how much the valuation of a business can be affected by by a little bit of good news. Yeah, I mean, this is this is rank speculation. Um, if you look at the US, they, I mean, if you've heard Trump saying, you know, the only things he can say these days to cheer himself up, the, uh, the NASDAQ and uh, the Dow Jones is at all-time highs. 
which is ridiculous in the middle of a pandemic. So I do worry that we may have a bit of a bubble forming uh, in the stock markets and we could see a lot of companies' uh, stock prices um, bursting, plummeting down, um, because I do think a lot of them are overvalued considering. Um, I mean, there's some that clearly aren't, such as the airlines, um, such as the banks that went down. I mean, the banks were never going to fail. So they they have they have picked up, etc. But I mean, I do think there's quite a few shares in there are overvalued based on speculation, especially as, you know, not to be a downer on anything, but I mean, e- even Easter for, for widespread vaccinations might be a little bit optimistic. So it'd be interesting, but it's definitely positive news. Definitely. But will there be many businesses still around to see to see that time? Well, I hope so. <laughs> so do I. Probably not Arcadia's. Let's wrap up the news stories then. So let's have a look at a topic in five minutes. So this is cost leadership versus differentiation leadership. And I did this with my GCC group this week. And I thought it was, you know, I, I stumbled across some statistics that really proved a point that I've been making to students for years. And so I thought it was worth sharing. Now, the, the Michael Porter's generic strategies talks about the two main methods and two main strategies in order which to adopt in order to attain a competitive advantage. He argues that you should either go for cost leadership, where you try and keep your cost as low as possible so you can charge the lowest possible prices, i.e. you lead on cost, or alternatively, go for differentiation. So trying to make your products unique, different compared to competitors, and as a result, maybe charge a higher markup or and and you might have less sales, but you then be able to you make up for the less sales with the with the higher market and the higher profit margins. Porter's assertion was always that the best option is to be in one of those two strategies, and to be in the middle is a little bit. It's not the ideal. You're not super cheap, and you're also not truly differentiated. And so what you tend to find is when you're in the middle of a market that if you have customers who are looking for something of a little bit more value or maybe their circumstances change and they haven't got quite as much disposable income then those customers will move from the middle to the cost leadership alternatively if you're looking for if the customers in the middle are looking for a little bit more quality they'll go to the right they'll go to the differentiation leadership businesses but what you don't see very often is you don't see consumers going from cost leadership businesses to differentiation leadership businesses unless you know, their circumstances change drastically, like if they win the lottery or they get a really new high paid job or something like that. And similarly, you don't see very many consumers go from differentiation leadership to cost leadership unless, again, their circumstances change, like they lose their job or something like that. So a really good example of a market to use this model with is the grocery market, because it so clearly emphasizes the, the benefits of having one of those two strategies. On the screen, if you're watching this on the on the YouTube version, you'll see that we've got our cost leadership businesses, Aldi, Lidl, and Iceland. They are obviously known for their very, very low prices and very sort of standard product ranges, a lot of own brand products. In fact, I think Aldi's solely own brand products. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you've got Waitrose and the Co-op. Waitrose is known for their high quality and high price. The Co-op known for their your sort of community work and their community ownership and their um, organic product ranges and a lot of local produce. And then you've got the four businesses in the middle who you're probably looking at and thinking well, they're the biggest. And you are right that they are the biggest, but they're also the ones that are more susceptible to losing consumers. And, and what we're starting to see is we're starting to see a lot of consumers moving from the mid-market, Sainsbury's, Asda, Tesco and Morrison's over towards especially Aldi, Lidl and Iceland. And we're not seeing that same movement from Waitrose. Waitrose and the crop aren't, they don't seem to be losing their their customers. So I've found this table and put this table together and it looks at the market share from 2012 
2015, 2018, 19, and 20, just so you can sort of see the pattern between, you know, between these businesses, their strategies, whether they're mid-market, low-cost, or highly differentiated, and what's happened to their market share. And Mike, what kind of, um, what kind of, con- what, what did you find from this? So, I mean, if we look at the table, it confirms that the big four, Tesco, Sainsbury's, Asda, Morrison's, that are the mid-market operators, should be uh, concerned, as as you know, you may have seen news reports of their concern, even exam papers written of Tesco's concern, for example. So, if we look at Tesco as an example, as the market leader, in 2012, they had a strong 30.9%, uh, technically kind of giving them a, a monopoly um according to the CMA, and they've slowly dropped um, over the years, over the, those eight years up to 2020, uh, to have just 26.9%. And that is a trend that every single one of the top four um, has seen. So they have all been looking to possibly uh, shift to the cost leadership uh, approach to try and do battle with with the likes of Aldi and Lidl, who have all seen steady, significant increases in their market share. So this kind of does prove the point that you were saying that Porter is right. If you are in the middle, um, you will start losing your competitive advantage, even if you have a strong competitive yeah, advantage. Yeah, definitely. Start with. You know, you look at this and you think that's over eight years, and Tesco, you know, Sainsbury's, Asda, Morrison's. They'll have looked at the data from 2012 to 2013, and they'll have noticed there's a start there's a start of decline, and they'll also have seen the likes of Aldi and Lidl. And yet, despite the fact that this has been a clear threat for five, six years at least, they haven't been able to do anything effectively about it. You've seen, you know, something like I think I read a statistic that said half of the population of the UK have visited an Aldi in the last six months, and. You know, you, you look at Tesco with their attempt at being low cost. They tried to release sort of kind of a spin-off called Jack's, which you'd think you'd think I'd love, given that that's my name mm. and all the products had my name on. <laughs> um, but it just didn't take off. It was effectively supposed to be Tesco's version of Aldi, all all sort of own brand products, all manufactured in Britain. And they were going to sort of that was going to be their big their big shift towards the low cost. And I think they were probably hoping that that would take off. And it just it just hasn't. I think they've got 10 or 15 around the country. You know, in two years, clearly that hasn't kicked on the way they would have liked it to. So hopefully this proves the point. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, they put those jacks, those jack stores on in very deprived areas, didn't they? So maybe had the right idea, but it's tricky. They are, they are very confused at Tesco. If you actually look at their their strategy, they want to be cost leadership, possibly in the store. And then one year in their normal stores and then the next year they are they are seeing the downsides of cost leadership in profit um, margin reduction. So they then flip flop to try and to to go just. Uh, highly differentiated again so they have no clear strategy so if you've got some shares in tesco yeah, sell them. um moving on <laughs> moving on so the the new student misconception of the month so you may have done leadership um at the at the start of your um a level course near the start when you're looking at entrepreneurs just ah you've just done it have you oh okay cool i know a lot of teachers teaching near the start when they're doing like what is an entrepreneur and then they go into the difference between a leader um but yeah you might have just done it as well um and if you're an a level you may be coming up to doing culture um handy's culture model or you might have already done it if uh, as i know a few other teachers have so one common misconception is that autocratic leadership or a power culture is necessarily bad for a business so this is something that i see a lot of students um doing class and exam papers and and it's just not it's a bit too simplistic for A-level standard. If it was a GCSE topic, then fair play. Um, but at A-level standard, it's not as cut and dry on that. So some businesses will actually see um, benefits from having an autocratic leadership style or a power culture. And one example of that is Sports Direct, 
for all the all the the stick they've been getting and Mike Ashley's been getting over the years for zero hour contracts, um, draconian management styles. That every single year for the last ten years they've seen revenue going up, they've seen uh, market share going up, they've seen share prices going up, apart from one dip when they were um, on Panorama for for using such draconian autocratic leadership styles. But at the end of the day, the results do speak for themselves in that kind of business. So there are businesses where autocratic leadership, a power culture, um, can actually give results if that's the kind of objectives you've set yeah, for your we, business. Yeah, we talk about this with, uh, I talked about this literally, I think last week, we've just finished um, leadership with my year 12s. And it's really, you know, when you ask the students, which one would you rather work for? None of them say autocratic. Because they, it's it's this the feeling of being told what to do and the the feeling of not having an input into the business, but in reality, you know, we we always try and focus on on whether the job is high skill or low skilled. Because if it's a low skilled job, sometimes mm. actually it's better to have autocratic leadership where where the employees know exactly what's expected of them. They know exactly what they need to be doing, and you know, if it's a low skilled job, they might have low skilled employees or lower skilled employees who might not, you know, might not want necessarily the pressure of having to suggest things for the business to improve on they might just want to turn up and do their job and know exactly what it is they need to do the other key thing is decision making it's much easier to have a clear decision where everyone knows exactly what is expected when you've got an autocratic or power leadership or power culture because usually that is going to be very centralized isn't it you're going to have one person or one small group of people making the decision and so as a result you know decisions are made very quickly might allow them to react to trends a little bit quicker um, so there are definitely are situations where this is a positive. And the last the last little bit I'd just say on this is when you look at key examples of, of entrepreneurs and really famous entrepreneurs, the likes of Steve Jobs, the likes of, you know, um, Jeff Bezos, the likes of Mike Ashley, as much as I can't stand the man because of what he does to my football club, I can't deny the fact that he has become a very successful businessman. A lot of them are autocratic and it's because they have had an idea. It has worked so successfully for them. It's made them very, very rich. And so as a result, there is like a, there's a level of entitlement that they feel that their opinion is the most important one because it's led to them being so successful. It's led to their businesses being so successful. And you can't, you can't really argue with that, can you? No, you can't argue with results. I mean, another kind of, not to make this even more complicated, but another thing that say an A-star student would realize is that you can't necessarily pigeonhole a whole um company into one leadership style so even though um mike ashley comes across very you know brash autocratic um, and most of his managers from from what i have seen um follow that example you will have some that are paternalistic you know the whole good cop bad cop scenario and that's what sometimes you could argue works best uh well i'm clearly the autocratic one aren't i that's what i'm told at school that's what i'm told no one wants me for parents even trust me (laughs) So yeah, don't oversimplify. Um, it's good if you can have a mix, um, but there will be a predominant. That's the word I would use if I was if I was talking about leadership styles in a business or the culture of a business. There's probably a predominant culture or there's a predominant leadership style that is uh, apparent and and works well. What doesn't work well, that's for you it's, to assess. Yeah, it's definitely quite naive, isn't it, to assume that democratic good or autocratic bad. It's very uh, very simplistic, as you say. The last part of this podcast is we're going to provide you with an A-level question and a GCC exam question. And we put a little bit of a twist on this one because, you know, a lot of teachers uh, quite often say that students find it difficult to use data effectively and interpret data effectively. 
And so we've put together a, a PDF with about six figures of data, so six, six short extracts. And they're all about the same context. They're all about Google looking to enter the VR market. And so they've collected some market research data. We've put a question for GCC students, which is analyze the importance to Google of market research data as they look to enter the VR headset market. And the key focus there is make sure you're using the data, looking at the data. What does it tell you? How would that finding that, that is in that data um, help Google with their decision? And we've also got an A-level question as well, which is using the data and extracts provided, assess two reasons Google should enter the VR headset market. So not only will you have to find some reasons in the in the data that demonstrate that this is the right decision, but you'll also see, see if you can find anything that might be a however, or think about maybe some other things you might know about competition that you might potentially be able to bring into that, that answer. Uh, Mike, you got anything to add on those exam questions? No, I mean, I'll just agree with you. Um, when I write case studies, when I write exam papers, I often I put the, the hidden gems within the data, you know, that A star point that makes you go, wow, that's a that's a 12 out of 12 that is in your conclusion or whatever. Um, so look in the data. Um, for example, figure one has definitely got a gem in there. If you can if you can have a look into that, um, look for the gem, look for what's going to set you apart from a an A grade student or a B grade student. Um, and if in GCC, what's going to tell you apart from a, a grade nine to a grade seven so look in there don't avoid the data like a lot of students do because you either don't like maths or it's just uh, it's 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 all too much under the pressure get used to it uh, try and use the data as much as you can um, and that's how you're going to be getting those those top level Definitely. answers i'm gonna chuck one other thing on our website which is linked on the screen now to get the resources from this from this podcast and the resource i'm about to talk about um, just visit our website which is www.edifyed uk forward slash business. Um, you will also find these linked on our Twitter and Instagram, which is also on the screen. I'm going to share on the website a Excel spreadsheet that I made for my students, which contains all of the past exam questions for the Edexcel A-level. And you're able to click the sort of criteria on the right-hand side to choose particular topics so that you can so that you can find exam questions to practice um, in your own time. I, I guess I just sort of echo what Mike said. Exam practice is all about practice. You know, if you're not comfortable with writing and using data, the only way to get better at that is to practice it. And so hopefully if we can provide you with some exam questions to do, then you might find, you know, you've got a resource there that allows you to do as many exam questions as you possibly can. Um, ah, yeah, great yeah. Tool. You, you started using it? Yeah, we, we spruced it up a little bit, didn't we? And yeah, definitely. I've been using it myself yeah. to find a, an exam question for a topic like on culture the other day. So yeah, very handy. Um, we could even do a quick like two minute just tutorial video to show you how yeah. to use it if uh, if if people if you see yeah. a lot of downloads. Um, so yeah, very useful for teachers or students. Definitely. Uh, alike. Um, right. So this will be posted early December and we will be back in the new year unless there's something really big that happens. So have a good Christmas. Hopefully you're able to spend much of it with you, with your families and what have you and stay safe and we will see you in the new year yeah have a safe christmas guys